Please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, this morning I'll be reading verses 1 through 7. Please give your full attention to the inerrant word of God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. When I was about 14 years old, I got a job working for my public school on the janitorial staff. And my job was to go around after school in the evening and clean classrooms. Well, during that period of time that I had the job, there was uh, some kind of breakdown in the structure of part of the school building. And so they had to shut down a section of classrooms in the elementary school and had to find some other classrooms to put these children in. So they actually rented space from a church that was a couple of blocks away and had the children go to classes over at the church during the school day. It just so happened that that church was the church that I attended as a child, the one I grew up in, my family was a part of. And it became my job on the janitorial staff to go over to the church by myself and clean the classrooms in the building every day. Something really surprised me during that job. There were, there were, there were classrooms that had doorways that opened out into the sanctuary. And of course, when I was there all by myself, I'd turn on the lights in the classroom, but the sanctuary was dark. And what struck me, what scared me, was that sanctuary. I, I was terrified of that room, and I didn't understand it. Totally mystified me. Why did that empty room, the sanctuary of the church, scare me so? Didn't understand it for years, really, until after I became a Christian. It was two years later that I gave my life to the Lord, and I be, became a believer. And now I look back on that strange fear that I had of an empty, dark, mysterious sanctuary as being just a sign, one of a many growing number of signs of a fear of God in my life, a terror before the presence of God that ultimately would lead to me coming to Christ and finding salvation. So I'm thankful for that terror of the sanctuary because of what it led to in my life, among other things.
Verse 1 of the passage that we just read says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Sounds like what God said to Moses from the burning bush. He said, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Do not enter the presence of God thoughtlessly, brashly, or presumptuously. That's a consistent teaching of God's word from the beginning to the end. Of course, when it says house of God here, it's speaking in an Old Testament context, so it's writing of the temple of God, as it's described in the Old Testament, the place where God's presence was represented in the midst of his people. And as you think about the biblical descriptions of the temple, everything about that place screamed or shouted to us, guard your steps when you come into the presence of God. Everything about the temple. Approach God very, very carefully. Of course, even before you came to the temple, there were lists of rules about being clean, ceremonially clean, so that you could come to the temple to worship. So there was a tremendous amount of preparation to make sure that you were ceremonially clean so that you could come to the temple to worship. And then once you arrived, you found out there were restricted places you weren't allowed to go as a sinner. There were cleansing rituals. There were priests to mediate between you and the symbols of the presence of God. And of course, nothing communicated the message that we need to approach God very, very carefully more than the blood sacrifices themselves. Can you imagine if we were required today, if you had to stop by outside the sanctuary and take an animal and slit the throat and have the blood poured out as a display of blood atonement, if you had to do that in order to come in to worship in God's sanctuary, could you imagine how that would get across the message that you need to guard your steps when you come before a holy God? In this section, Q, Professor Q, the preacher, whatever you want to call him, who is our observer, our guide through life under the sun in the book of Ecclesiastes, where he limits his worldview and perspective to what can be known from observation under the sun. He addresses the issue of religion, going to the temple, worship under the sun, which may seem kind of odd because he's restricting himself to under the sun, but he's acknowledging that life in Old Testament Israel included temple worship. And so he's going to address that aspect of life, and he's going to give us observations about how to go to the temple, how to come before the presence of God under the sun. Last week we talked about, as we saw, Q gave us a guided tour of how to deal with the relationships in our lives. And he talked about the value of relationships to survive fallen life among sinners under the sun as sinners. And this week he deals with the relationship with God. How do we approach God under the sun? And I have to remind you that because he's limited his observations to what can be seen, tasted, touched, felt under the sun, he's not going to deal with the revelation of God's grace. He doesn't mention grace in this passage at all. 
That's because he doesn't intend to give us the whole picture. We've said that all along. He's not trying to tell us everything. What he says about worship, about coming to the presence of God in this passage is true, but it's incomplete. It's not the whole picture. And as I say at the end of every message, now that we've seen what he says about this subject under the sun, now we need to go to the rest of scripture to get the whole story, to get the full picture, and we'll do that after a bit. But what he says here about approaching God, insofar as it goes, is true. And I want you to understand that. It's true, but incomplete. So what does he teach us about approaching God? First of all, he teaches us that we must come to God with a submissive heart. He says it this way in verse 1. To draw near, which is an Old Testament Hebrew euphemism for worship. To draw near... To listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are, that they are doing evil. This word in the original language, in the Hebrew language, this word doesn't mean to listen in the physiological sense. To just hear the auditory signals. That's not what the word listen means here. When he uses the word listen here in the original Hebrew, it's the same way that I mean listen when I talk to kids and I say, listen to me. I don't mean process the auditory signals. I mean hear what I'm saying, receive it humbly, and then do what I'm telling you to do. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying listen with a humble, trusting, teachable spirit ready to obey once you understand what you will hear in the presence of God. And that's the attitude that he is instructing us to have when we come into the presence of God. We need to come with a listening heart, a humble, submissive, teachable, obedient heart. In Isaiah chapter 66, we read this at the beginning of the service. It says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's the listening spirit. That's what it means to come into the presence of God with a heart prepared to listen. It's to be humble, contrite, and to tremble before the word of God. We spend our weeks at work, at school, at play, in our families, in our chores, we spend our week under the sun as sinners among sinners. So when we come into the presence of God, we have a strong inner tendency to come self-righteous, self-justifying, and defensive. That's our normal state of mind and heart. We come to church ready to show others how good and religious we are to compare ourselves to other worshipers. We come to critique other worshipers or to critique those who lead us in worship. We come to affirm what we like about what we hear and to block out what we don't like. We need to come with listening hearts. And how often do we do that when we come to worship? What this points to is the need for preparation for worship something that's a lost art in the church these days. We need to prepare our minds and hearts through a disciplined 
way of life. So that when we come to worship, we're ready to worship with a listening, humble, contrite, and obedient heart. We don't come into the presence of God in our normal state with that mind. That means it takes preparation. That means, sorry to say, going to bed earlier on Saturday night. You can't stay up until 2 in the morning on Saturday night and Sunday morning and then get up and go to church and expect to have the kind of heart attitude and mindset that Q is saying we need to have in worship. You need a good night's rest so that physically you're able to come with a listening heart. You also need to plan for Sunday morning and for the whole Lord's Day to move things out of this sacred space in your week that distract you and limit your ability to be in the right state of mind and heart, not only to worship in the gathered worship of God's people, but to spend the Lord's Day in a day of rest and worship. It takes planning and preparation before Sunday. And on Sunday, this is probably going to be the most unpopular thing I'm going to say, you need to get up earlier. You need to have more time available to you to prepare to come to worship. It's not enough to make sure that you have the right clothes on and have your makeup on and that you've got all the kids in the car when you come to worship. It's not enough to meet those minimal requirements. You need to have time to prepare your mind and heart or you're never going to be ready to listen when you come. You need time to spend time in the word and prayer before you come to the gathered worship. You need it. Because if you jump out of bed, run into the bathroom, get your body ready to be at church, run around the house and get your family ready to be at church, then run into church and get there three or four or five or 15 minutes late, there's no way, humanly speaking, that you're going to be ready to come with a listening, humble, contrite heart that's ready to obey, to hear and obey. It takes preparation. And without a listening heart, listen very carefully to what Q says, without a listening heart, Our worship is what he calls the sacrifice of fools. In other words, empty rituals. And empty rituals are not only meaningless, they're actually evil, it says. And he says, he goes on in verse 4 to say that God has no pleasure in fools. As the old saying goes, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Samuel said to Saul when he offered up a man-centered sacrifice without a sincere heart, he said to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. And remember how Jesus responded to the hypocrites who worshipped in Israel in his day. He said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. We need to worship with a humble, submissive, contrite, listening heart, ready to obey. Secondly, Q says, we must come to God with few words. Now, if you knew I was going to preach on worship this morning, how many of you thought that I would give that as one of the main points? But that's what Q says. You need to approach God with few words. He says in verse 2, Be not rash with your mouth, and nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Let your words be few, he says. 
It fits together the first point, though, doesn't it? Because we're to come ready to listen. That should be our primary state of mind and heart. We're here to listen, to receive, to see the glory of God revealed. We're here to listen, not to speak, primarily. And so let your words be few. He's not saying don't speak. He's saying that when you speak, make sure that your words are thoughtful, careful, and appropriate. Now, when we did our study of Proverbs last year, we, did, we devoted a whole message to everything Proverbs has to say about how we use our tongue. And remember that using few words, fewer words, more carefully is kind of a general instruction for all of life. And you do see that all through Scripture. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. And that's a very consistent teaching, not just in Proverbs, but in Scripture in general. Why is that? Because as Jesus told us, out of the overflow or out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it's just logical. Think about what's in your heart. The more you open your mouth, the more you let that ugliness come out. It's better to restrain your lips and carefully choose your words so that you don't compound the sin in your heart by projecting it or proclaiming it out to the world through your words. Be careful. Use fewer words and use them thoughtfully. Proverbs 15, verse 28 says, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. A point that came home to me this week as I was reflecting on these texts was that in the kingdom of God, in a very very real sense, we earn the right to use more words through spiritual maturity. The more godly, the more Christ-like you are, the more that you have the mind of Christ, the more your heart conforms to the will of Christ, the more freedom you will have to speak more words. But for you and I, we should speak fewer words. We should consider our words more carefully. That's true for all of life, but if that's true in all of life, how much more is it true when you gather together to worship God? In whatever setting, you worship God. Our words should be few. You know, when Jesus told us to pray, he told us not to multiply words, didn't he? He's making the same point. Choose your words carefully. Better to have fewer well-thought-out words than many words. This is what he's saying in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. When I was a young Christian, a lot of teachers, Bible study leaders, older Christians, gave me kind of a wrong idea, not intentionally, but they held up, held up examples of great saints from the history of the church who spent hours and hours and hours in prayers. People like Martin Luther, I heard about getting up in the middle of the night to pray and praying for hours before he ever started his day. And those were, that's good, but what it gave me, you know, as, as a young believer who didn't really understand the full picture, what that said to me is the longer you pray, the more spiritual you are. And it could actually go directly against what Q is saying here, that if you pray a lot of words, you obviously must be more spiritual than somebody who prays few words. But that's not the issue, is it? Right after Jesus said, don't be like the pagans who heap up piles of words when they pray, 
thinking that they can manipulate God with their words, don't be like them. He proceeds to give us a model prayer, which we call the Lord's Prayer, which we said earlier in the service. In the original Greek, that prayer, which summarizes all the important aspects of prayer, is 56 words in the original Greek. And it's fully sufficient to cover the needs of our prayer. Now, I'm not saying you have to only pray the Lord's Prayer when you pray. I'm just saying it illustrates the point that you don't have to have thousands of words to get God's attention or to communicate to God. Let your words be few because they're carefully chosen and thoughtfully expressed. You see, the issue isn't the number of words. The issue is, again, the state of the heart, your thoughtfulness, your awareness as you speak before the Lord. Many churches these days have big screens up front, and they project all the words that are used in the service up on the screens. And we've talked about doing that. And there are pros and cons to doing that. There's advantages and disadvantages. But I just want to make you aware of the fact that, as of now, you still have a great opportunity when you come into worship. Assuming that you've prepared well and that you've gotten here early, that you can sit down in the pew and you can take the bulletin and you've got almost every word that you're going to say during the service. You've got it right in front of you or you have access to it in the bulletin. That means you can read through the songs that you're going to sing. You can read the scripture passages we're going to look at. You're going to have time to thoughtfully consider everything that's going to be said and everything you're going to say in response in worship. I would encourage you to take advantage of that. The time before the service, I know, is valuable to visit with your friends. It's valuable for fellowship in the church. But try to get to your seat 10 minutes early so you can take time to read through the words that you'll be saying in worship so that your worship will be more from the heart and the mind. I guarantee that your worship will be much more satisfying much more fulfilling, and your awareness of the presence of God will be heightened because your words will be carefully considered. Why do we need to be careful with our words? Why should our words be few? The reason that's given is in verse 2. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. That's one of the basic principles that should guide worship. It's one of the foundational truths that we begin with in worship. It's remembering who God is and who we are in light of that. That's foundational to worship. Isaiah 55, verse 9, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We're talking about the holiness of God. The holiness of God, not in the sense that just that he's so much more pure and holy and righteous than we are, but that he's holy other. He's beyond our comprehension. He is high and lifted up. He is transcendent. We're talking about the holiness and transcendence of the creator who spoke this universe into existence and who sustains it moment by moment. The one who knows every thought that goes through our mind and judges us according to his perfect standards of righteousness. That's where we begin in worship. That's why we take time to confess sin as we enter into worship. Because you cannot consider that without realizing how desperately unworthy you are to be here in and of yourself. I think it's a foundational problem of the church in our generation that we have lost the sense of transcendence in our worship. 
We have consciously, by many means, tried to bring God down to our level so that he's more comfortable to us, that he's more user-friendly. And if you could use one word to describe worship in most evangelical churches over the last generation, the word that tends to come to mind is casual. But there's nothing casual about walking into the presence of this God that the scriptures present to us. Now, I'm not talking about how you dress. I'm not talking about whether your hair is combed or not. I'm not talking about necessarily any of these superficial things. I'm talking about the state of your mind and your heart, which is only a gift of the Holy Spirit to those who are born again by the grace of God. Our worship should be, a healthy biblical worship service should be permeated with a sense of the awe of being in God's presence. There should be some element of the same kind of visceral reaction that we have. I don't know if you've ever been on the top of the mountains. We, on our vacation one time, we went to the top of the Smoky Mountains where there's no, you know, what they call that, light interference at all. It's totally dark at the top of the mountain. And if you look up the night sky when there's no clouds blocking it, it is a vivid, powerful, mind-blowing display of the glory of God, just like the scriptures say. And when you see that, you have a physiological as well as spiritual reaction of awe before what God has made, let alone the one who spoke it into existence. Or maybe you've had the experience of standing beside the Grand Canyon. I haven't had that one yet. I have had the experience of standing beside Niagara Falls. There's an awe. It's a, it's a visceral response of awe. There needs to be an element of that in our worship as we look upon the glory of God as, as it's revealed in his word. So let your words be few and come with a listening heart ready to receive from this glorious God. Which brings us to his third point, which is a very specific use of our tongues in worship. He says we must come to God with sincere vows, sincere promises. In verse 4 he says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Empty promises to God in worship are meaningless to him. Matter of fact, again, he would say they're foolish, they're evil. Vows were a much more prominent feature of worship in biblical times. It was expected that often you would come to worship and you would make a promise to God to give something, to sacrifice something, or to do something as an expression of gratitude for answered prayer or as an expression of love and loyalty to the Lord your God. It's expressed in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 65 where he says, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people in the courts of the house of the Lord. Praise the Lord. When we think of vows in worship, we tend to think of a very limited number of activities. We think of membership vows. We think of marriage vows, baptism vows. But vows aren't a prominent part of worship. And part of that's because of the difference between the Old Testament shadows in the worship that were done under the Old Covenant and New Testament worship being of a different character. There's, that's part of the reason. But also part of the reason is we're not a promising people, generally speaking. We don't like to make promises. We don't like to make commitments. We don't like to be held accountable for our commitments. We don't like to be locked in to things that we said we were going to do. We like to keep our options open. And so, Q says, if you're not going to keep a vow, make sure you don't make it. 
because making a promise to God is a very serious thing. Better not to make a vow at all than to make a vow and break it. That's what the law taught. Basically, Q is just quoting what the law states in Deuteronomy. Keep a vow if you make it to God, but don't make a vow if there's any chance you're going to break it because it's a very serious thing to make a promise to God. Remember, Jesus condemned the hypocrites of his day because they'd come up with a system for adding qualifiers to their vows. And so they could break a vow if they made it not by God's name, but by the temple or something in the temple. And, you know, they would qualify their vows, and it was basically an out clause so they could get out of promises they made in worship to God. And he condemned them for that hypocrisy. Remember Ananias and Sapphira. We're talking about New Testament worship here. We're not talking about Old Covenant worship. We're talking about New Testament worship in the book of Acts. Ananias and Sapphira made a vow to God that they were going to sell their property and give the proceeds to the church. But they didn't follow through. At least they didn't give all the proceeds as they said they were going to. And remember what Peter said to him. He said, it was a voluntary vow. Nobody made you make that promise. But once you made it, you must follow through. And when they didn't, the discipline against them was extremely harsh. And so it makes the point that it's not an old covenant, new covenant thing, that God takes our promises very, very seriously. The last phrase in verse 7 gives us the tone of this entire instruction, doesn't it? The last phrase says, God is the one you must fear. Step carefully when you come into the presence of God because God is the one whom you must fear. A true relationship with God and therefore true worship of God begins with a fear of the Lord. Humility, contrition, and awe before his transcendence and holiness. All that is absolutely true and it's foundational. But as I said, it's true, but it's not the whole story. It's not the whole story, praise God. Because who of us would feel like we wanted to come to worship next week if we just stopped here, if this was the whole story. We would be terrified at the idea of even walking into a sanctuary if this were all the farther it went. This is true, but it's not the whole story. And the whole story is the freedom that we have to approach God through the Son of God. The coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, into the world didn't in any way diminish the holiness or the transcendence of the God that we serve. God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is still holy and transcendent. Everything that the Old Testament revealed about him is still true. Jesus didn't come to change or diminish any of that. What he came to do was to provide a means of access for all eternity into God's presence that's unconditional. You see, Jesus came... This is the eternal Son of God who added to his divine nature a human nature and he came and dwelt among us as a perfect man who never sinned. And what that means is that every time Jesus worshipped, he worshipped perfectly when he worshipped the Father. He worshipped the Father with perfect submission, with a listening heart, perfectly every time. And yet he died for all of our defensiveness, our self-justification, and our self-righteousness before God. Jesus always worshipped with perfect words, totally heartfelt and sincere. 
And yet he died for all of our mindless, half-hearted, distracted, and pride-soaked words of worship. Jesus kept every vow. Matter of fact, he's kept every promise he's ever made going all the way back to the beginning of the book of Genesis. He's always kept his promise. And yet he died to pay the price for all the promises we've made to God and haven't kept. Do you remember what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well? He said, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain here in Samaria nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He's alluding to the fact that his coming, ultimately his death and his resurrection, was going to eliminate that temporary old covenant shadowy distinction between sacred space and common space. And he was alluding to the fact that the temple was now going to become the people of God. That the dwelling of God is going to be, in a very real sense, in the midst of his people where two or three or more are gathered together in the name of Jesus Christ. And that when we approach God in his house, we approach him by faith and we worship as a spiritual family in his presence wherever we gather The veil that separated the Holy of Holies, where the very presence of God was represented in the temple, separated from the rest of the temple. That veil was torn in two from top to bottom the moment that Christ died, declaring to the world that access to this holy and transcendent Father was now complete, finished, once for all. So we don't worship in order to be accepted We worship because we've been accepted in Christ. That's a huge difference. So when we come to worship, when we come to this place of worship, we should not come in fear. We should not come in terror. We should come in awe before this holy and transcendent God who is and was and always will be. We should come with that attitude, but we should also come with confidence, the scriptures tell us. Because Christ died for all of that false worship in our hearts and all the sins that permeate our lives and they're done away with as far as east is from west. We are robed in his righteousness as we stand together in the presence of Christ. We don't need to be afraid or hesitant to worship. That's what Hebrews chapter 10 is trying to get across. Listen to the language of this. In light of everything that Q has told us about the right way to approach our holy and transcendent God, listen to what The writer of Hebrews says, beginning in verse 19 of chapter 10, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You see, the grace of Christ, the grace that's summarized in the gospel that we proclaim, does not remove the necessity for reverential fear of the Lord. We still must stand in awe before this creator and judge and redeemer. And we still need to guard our steps when we go to the house of God. 
Matter of fact, increasingly so as we grow in our faith and our spiritual maturity because we see the holiness of God more clearly and we see our sinfulness more clearly too. But we must never approach him in fear of judgment because that's what 1 John says, perfect love casts out that fear. And the perfect love is in the gospel of Christ. I want to close by sharing another story about another sinner who was terrified by a sanctuary. Very, very similar story to my own. I don't know if you've ever read the book The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. If you haven't, please do as soon as possible. It's one of those top five books that every Christian should read beside the Bible. But in that book, The Holiness of God, R.C. Sproul begins by telling a story when he was a young man. Matter of fact, not 14 in his case. He was actually a young uh, student at, in college. And he talks about, as a brand new believer who had just become a Christian, he had an experience in the middle of the night in his campus. And I remember just being blown away by his story and so much identifying with it in light of my own experience. I want to share, if you be patient with me, I want to share that story with you for a moment. He says... The chapel of the, of the college was in the shadow of Old Main Tower. The door was made of heavy oak with a gothic arch. I swung it open and entered the narthex. The door fell shut behind me with a clanging sound that reverberated from the stone walls of the nave. The echo startled me. It was a strange contrast to the sounds of the daily chapel services where the opening and closing of the doors were muffled by the sounds of students shuffling to their assigned places. Now the sound of the door was amplified into the void of midnight. I waited for a moment in the narthex, allowing my eyes a few seconds to adjust to the darkness. The faint glow of the moon seeped through the muted stained glass windows. I could make out the outline of the pews and the center aisle that led to the chancel steps. I felt a majestic sense of space accented by the vaulted arches of the ceiling. They seemed to draw my soul upward, a sense of height that evoked a feeling of a giant hand reaching down to pick me up. I moved slowly and deliberately toward the chancel steps. Each step resounded down the center aisle as I reached the carpet-covered chancel. There I sank to my knees. I had reached my destination. I was ready to meet the source of the summons that had disturbed my sleep. I was in a posture of prayer, but I had nothing to say. I knelt there quietly, allowing the sense of the presence of a holy God to fill me. The beat of my heart was telltale, a thump, thump against my chest. An icy chill started at the base of my spine and crept up my neck, Fear swept over me. I fought the impulse to run from the foreboding presence that gripped me. The terror passed, but soon it was followed by another wave. This wave was different. It flooded my soul with unspeakable peace, a peace that brought instant rest and repose to my troubled spirit. At once, I was comfortable. I wanted to linger there, to say nothing, to do nothing, simply to bask in the presence of God. That moment was life-transforming. Something deep in my spirit was being settled once for all. From this moment, there could be no turning back. There could be no erasure of an indelible imprint of its power. I was alone with God, a holy God, an awesome God, a God who could fill me with terror in one second and with peace in the next. I knew in that hour that I had tasted of the Holy Grail, 
Within me was a born a new thirst that could never be fully satisfied in this world. I resolved to learn more, to pursue this God who lived in dark Gothic cathedrals and who invaded my dormitory room to rouse me from complacent slumber. That's what I'm talking about. That's what an experience of worship is meant to be. We are to end up in a place of comfort. But it's after feeling the fear of standing before a transcendent and holy God in awe. And then looking to the cross and seeing the Son of God crucified there for our sins to gain us access into the presence of God. That's where real gratitude comes from. You need to go through that process so that your heart is filled with the gratitude and love and humility and utter dependence that the gospel demands of us in response to what Christ has done. Hebrews chapter 12 says, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the heavenly, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father, we again want to ask for forgiveness for our half-hearted, distracted, self-centered acts and words of worship. Your patience with us is astounding. But Lord, you are changing us by your spirit. And we thank you that as our sin is being purged and purified away from us, taken away from us step by step, moment by moment, we thank you, Lord, that you still freely, openly accept us into your presence as we are robed in the righteousness of Christ and cleansed in his blood. Father, I pray that your spirit would continue to transform us. I pray, Lord, that you would Bring us under conviction to come into your presence in whatever setting that may be with greater preparation, with listening and humble and contrite hearts, few words, and only sincere promises as we stand before you by your grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.